Hi, this is Bruce Boxleitner, and you're listening to Then Is Now podcast. Rise and shine, my sinners. When Father Evil starts his day, he gets a little deadly. Deadly Grounds Coffee has the richest, smoothest flavor you'll find anywhere. It's sinfully delicious. Once you go deadly, you never go back. Order yours at getdeadly.com. Coffee's so good, it's scary. Today's episode contains spoilers. So if you have not seen the movie or TV show that we are talking about, we highly recommend that you watch it first, then listen to this episode. Thank you. Hey folks, Rigor here. So just to quickly let you know, uh, I did have an issue with my own microphone. So every so often during uh, this upcoming recording that you're about to hear, my voice will sound a little different. And that's only because I had to use the backup uh, Zoom recording to supplement it so people would be able to understand what I'm saying. So that's it. So continue on and don't forget the spoilers for this film, which premieres September 8th on Video On Demand and select theaters. What kind of a sick school is this? Things are afoot at the Circle K. You're gonna need a bigger boat. Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. You got spunk. I hate spunk. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Oh, righty. How you doing? Back off, man. I'm a scientist. Don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. Stand up to my little friend. I love to celebrate plum in the morning. What are you people? On dope? Stop whining. I got a crap on deck that can choke a donkey. Who is your daddy? I'm sorry, but all questions must be submitted in writing. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Can I do that? I'll be back. A Daniel Man! Show me the money! Don't! Up your nose when you have a home. A what? I'm sailing! I'm sailing! You want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it. Pull it down. Love means never having to say you're sorry. Here's looking at you, kid. We got no food. We got no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. Go to the coast. We get together. Have a few laughs. Hear that, Elizabeth? I'm coming to join you, honey. I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. I love it when a plan comes together. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11. We're on a mission from God. Hello and welcome to Then Is Now Podcast, the show in which we discuss pop culture of the past and help you, the listener, introduce the young folks in your life to all the cool stuff they missed out on. I am your host, Rigor. And I am Chris Esper. I'm a filmmaker, uh, owner and operator of Stories in Motion. Excellent, excellent. So how you been, man? 
I've been doing well. It's been a crazy couple of uh, weeks that uh, I'm doing this new show for work. And uh, so that's been uh, keeping me busy. But, you know, I can't complain much. But uh, uh, I've been trying to, you know, go to the movies more often. I finally saw Oppenheimer and Barbie uh, not too long ago. <laughs> and uh, I have to say, they were um, Oppenheimer in particular. I really liked Barbie was fun. Um, and um, I, I enjoyed the commentary. Um, I don't think it was a great movie, but it was, but it was fun. Nice, nice. I think yeah. Oppenheimer and Barbie were playing as a double feature at one of the drive-ins around here recently. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I'm <laughs> like, that's a weird double bill. Yeah, I know, it really is. But I will say, I'm glad to see people are going back to the movies again. That's really that's really encouraging to see the the to see the cinema have some life again, even even if it is these two films. Not that they're bad, but you know. Yeah, we saw Blue Beetle that was yeah. really good, and um, and we saw the Boogeyman, which was a really good horror yeah. movie. Oh, the new Mission Impossible movie, man, that was so good. Oh, was it nice? Yeah, my wife and I jumped like three times in, with jump scares in the movie. It was so <laughs> that's <funny>. awesome. <laughs> Oh my god! Uh, how about you? How you been? Good, good. Just been busy working, writing soap opera news. It's been great. I see that they kind of open things up, so now we can do op eds, which are opinion pieces, and we kind of pitch uh, ideas. Nice. And so those have been fun. Like I did it. I guess um, Days of Our Lives on Monday. They they've all right. So here's the setup, and I will I'll be quick about it. The, um, the show has been on NBC for 57 years, and last September they decided to take it off the network and put it exclusively on Peacock mm -hmm. streaming app, which is really annoying for the old folks who don't know how to ah. navigate an app. Plus, you have to pay to watch it, and if you want to watch it without ads, you have to pay even more, which is ridiculous. Um, but then on Monday, the, the episodes usually post weekdays at 6 a.m., and they posted the episode from September 4th, next Monday. So people, I guess it stayed up for like three hours till they finally realized it, but people were pissed because um, Dick Van Dyke was supposed to come as a guest on the show, but they never said when he was going to be on, and all of a sudden he was in this episode, and um, a couple other cast members, weren't. it wasn't announced that they were coming back, and spoiler was ruined on uh, that one, and it was a, it, a big shit uh, show. No. So... <laughs> I wrote a scathing oh, article wow. about it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, one other show I wanted to mention that we watched, and it's it's only 11, 11 episodes so far. It's on Disney+. Plus. It's a family show. And, in fact, folks, if you go to havenpodcasts.com and click on Then Is Now Blog, um, I wrote a blog about it. I think it's number 53. It's a show called Villains of Valley wow. View. And the re it's, it's a family show, but it's one of these shows where, well, the premise is, there's this family of villains and for whatever reason they piss off the villain hierarchy in, in the universe that they live in and so they go on the run but also the superheroes are after them so they have to hide in this suburban Texas town and pretend to be normal people and it's absolutely hilarious and this like the landlady in it is so funny she's just so acerbic and crass and like but she'll say things and you'll be like, oh, my God, did she just say that? And it's it's jokes for adults, 
the kids would never get. Like she, they, the one one of the characters turned invisible and she bumped into him by accident. Of course, they don't want anybody to know they have powers, and they t- try to explain to her that it was a ghost. And she looks around and she goes, oh, "I tell you, you bulldoze a house full of drifters and they never let you live it down." <laughs> stuff like that so i highly recommend villains of valley view actually the reason we started watching is one of the actors um james patrick stewart um was is who's on general hospital is the father in the show and he's great he's complete opposite like his show his character in general hospital is more serious and stoic and in this he's an absolute nut because he's this genius and he's got like this crazy hair and stuff and it's it's a really good show um one of the one of the things, folks, I wanted to mention was um, this year's 13 Days of Hallowtober is coming up soon, and we are going to do werewolf movies this year. I think last year we did vampires, and the year prior we did zombies, so now this year we're doing werewolf films, and it's going to culminate with a Wolfman Roundtable episode uh, where we'll talk about the original Wolfman with Lon Chaney Jr. and the remake with Benicio Del Toro, hmm. so be on the lookout for that. All right, folks, so today we are going to discuss a thrilling modern horror film called Eight Found Dead with its director, Travis Green, and writer, Jonathan Buchanan. Now, if you're wondering why we're talking about a modern film, well, first of all, we've covered modern things in the past. It's not, it's, that's not a big deal, but it's also because of the influence of classic films. And we're going to, you know, there's so many nods in this movie. We're going to talk to the filmmakers about this and see what their influences were in creating this movie. Um, which is a very well-done horror film. So sit back and get ready for a really interesting discussion about the film Eight Found Dead, a home invasion horror movie for the Airbnb generation. Class is in session. I have a bad feeling about this. How could I possibly be expected to handle school on a day like this? Hey, you in my class? I am today. I think you should consider transferring to shock class. Now, now, very few students are severely injured in shock class. Bueller. When you were in school. Bueller. Did you ever cut class? Bueller. Yeah, I guess I did. Sure, most kids cut classes. Good, sign this. Um, he's sick. I get so lonely when I hear that third attendance bell ring and all my kids are not here. Seven years of college down the drain. Fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. You lack discipline. As long as I'm here, there will be no grades or gold stars or demerits. We're going to have recess all the time. Woo! Go, play, and have fun now. Okay, folks, joining us today are Travis Green and Jonathan Buchanan, the director and writer of the new horror film, Eight Found Dead. Welcome to the show, guys. Hello, thank you for How's having going? me. How's it going? Great, great. Now, before we begin, I'm going to read the quick synopsis of the film that you sent me, just so the folks at home know what we're talking about. Two couples drive to a secluded house in the desert for a weekend getaway, each with their own baggage, expectations, and secrets. Upon their arrival, they are met by two strangers who claim to have rented the house as well. What starts out as a simple misunderstanding ends in an all-night bloodbath. Told in four parts with a shuffled timeline, Eight Found Dead is less of a whodunit and more of a who-the-hell-survives. So, oh man, this movie was awesome. You had a great cast. Um, it was really, it really had me, you know, about halfway through, it really grabbed me and pulled me in and wouldn't let me go. <laughs> I, uh, nice. I, just, I just want to say I love that synopsis almost more than the film. And Jonathan wrote that synopsis. <laughs> and when I when I when he when he added baggage, I was like, oh, yes, a good pun is always well needed. 
Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you guys got into filmmaking. Uh, Travis, why don't you go first? Sure. Uh, and I'm just, I have a question for you there, Roger. Sure. Uh, when you felt the pull or the hook, was it around minute 30? Yes. It's when you see that. I, I mean, I don't know if we're going to chop out any spoilers. I don't care. It's in the title. We we wear the ending on our sleeves, although it ends not in a way that you would think it might end. Right. So, um, but around minute 30 is when I even am surprised or am fooled. I'm like, I see this this dead body of this character named Ricky and I go, oh shit, he's dead. I, I was really starting to like him. And then he comes back. So rest assured, we kill off people quick, but we bring them back. And then, you know, we go into the second act and you kind of forget what the ending, you know, that these people all inevitably die anyways. So uh, most of them, yeah, about 80, yeah. 80% of them. So yeah. um, how I got into filmmaking, was that the question? Yes. Okay. So I started uh, by day. I'm a television film and te I'm a film and television editor um, and producer around 2010. I got fed up with, Please don't fire me. Anyone that's listening to this that might employ me. I got tired of the idiocy of network notes. And I was like, I want to make my own stuff. I want to be uh, in charge. I want to have my voice heard. I want to have a say in in the product. And because um, all the shows that I was working on wasn't Travis Green Presents. I can right. probably say now, along with Jonathan Buchanan, Eight Found Dead is Travis Green and, and Jonathan Buchanan amongst a myriad of people presents. Um, and so I started off in short films, kind of cutting my teeth in kind of kitchen sink uh, absurdist uh, comedies and with a slight tinge of horror and inappropriateness <laughs> and that uh, like a lot of my, my early reviews on my first short film Guillermo was Oh man, this kid loves David Lynch. This guy's super weird. This guy's super <laughs> odd. I had never seen a David Lynch film at that point. I did not go to college. I went to a vocational school to learn avid media composer and avid pro tools because I got started off as a recording engineer that then parlayed itself or segued itself into television editing. And I had never seen a Lynch film. Now he's one of my favorite filmmakers and I can see why people were comparing some of my predilections to that of David Lynch because at one point I thought, you know, why not have every idea that I have at in that moment put and committed on screen or to camera. And thankfully guys like Jonathan Buchanan, one of my best closest friends for the past 15 years has always been on my side and, and watching my stuff before it goes out to the world. And, and he's honest with his criticisms and his critiques. He's fair. He's, he gives it to me straight. He tells me what he likes, tells me what he doesn't like. And that's how we kind of, um, well, more than that, I, I met Jonathan back in 2008. I was recording um, his, he was in a rock and roll band called the Holy Angel Fire and I was the recording engineer and he and I spent countless days, minutes, seconds, hours, weekends together in a small recording studio, home recording studio, just creating and making that album and uh, we got to know each other and we got to know each other's sensibilities and what we liked and what we didn't like and just, you know, kind of formed a friendship and a, and a bond. And that in turn led to Jonathan being able to be so honest with me in his in his criticism of my artistic endeavors. And so during the pandemic, I was we were just kind of, you know, 
palling around on Zoom or occasionally meeting up at a coffee shop to just spitball ideas and kind of really just dream and not really have a, a, a destination in mind. We were just kind of riffing on music video ideas, song ideas, short film ideas, television pilots, feature film ideas. And that's kind of when we landed on Eight Found Dead. There's a better backstory to it than that. But um, basically, I commissioned John to write this story because I had trusted him implicitly. I love his taste. I love his, his, uh, you know, like his, his um, written language, if you will. I love his, his mind. I love how his sense of humor, his comedy chops, and how he's unabashed to get kind of gruesome and effed up in his <laughs> writing. That's awesome. That's awesome. And I, I just wanted to ask Chris a quick question here because Chris is also a filmmaker. Do you do you feel that same kind of pull? Um, you know, you're by day you edit, but then you also make films on the side. Do you feel that same kind of pull to control absolutely. your own? Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. No, absolutely. And actually, I was going to jump in and say I also am. Uh, I also work in post production by day. Particularly, I work in uh, television, reality television. Uh, hey, hey another one of yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah, I work as an assistant editor where, you know, I use I use Media Composer all day long. And uh, but I get exactly what you're saying. The uh, barrage of not just network notes, but also uh, the content itself. You look at it and you're just like you're just like, you know, I can't be doing this day after day to be able to <laughs> control my own destiny, but also do something that I give a shit about, you know. And uh, so. I so that poll, yeah, I definitely identify with that, especially when you're working as an editor, where you're sort of you're controlling the destiny of someone else's vision, but then yours gets sort of like pushed away. It's really uh, it's a story story of an editor's life, I guess. Well, an editor want to be filmmaker. I'll tell you this though, Chris. Once I wrapped the film, I had to go back to my day job because I sank my entire life savings into this film. Oh yeah, and I yeah. I <laughs> I, uh, I went back to my to my gig or to just various jobs with a newfound understanding of of what people are going through and and the the role of the editor and how powerful it is and how uh, if i just check my ego at the door and i provide a service to my producers to my directors and and just kind of i'm their hands and also their sounding board i'm their confidant i'm their um the backbone right like i'm their uh i'm their cohort right i have found a more harmonious working environment to just, you know, please my masters, if you will. And and when I got into filmmaking, I was 27, 26 years old, and I was just a little flippant about it. I was like, I know more than these guys that are giving me these notes. And and I had to stumble over the first, you know, six or seven years of filmmaking of learning that I can't just put every idea into a film. I have to be methodical about it. I have to be calculated. I have to pay right. things off. I have to, yeah. it's a different part of the brain, you know, going from reality TV and crafting and perfecting the perfect Frankenbite to going to a narrative feature and being patient and deliberate in letting a scene breathe and not, and having the restraint and the discipline to not want to cut every oh, yeah. and a half, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh, and that, that's a problem you see in films today where it's like there's a cut Absolutely. every 10 seconds and it's ridiculous. <clears throat> I uh, I saw a fantastic interview with uh, the great Thelma Schoonmaker. For those that don't know who she is in the audience, uh, she is Maurice Scorsese's editor, has been for 50 years. 
And she wow. gave a great, she said, she gave an amazing story where she was teaching a seminar. Student raised her hand and said, hey, um, a director I'm working with asked me why I'm cutting uh, every three seconds. What, what should I tell him? And she goes, well, why are you cutting every three seconds? <laughs> you know, who, who says you're supposed to be doing that? Every shot has a life. And I'll never forget that. And it's true words to live by. Purpose, right? Yes, purpose. And, and to to not get ahead of ourselves, but like Jonathan was integral, not only being the writer of this, but like helping me get it across the finish line as my right hand. As it, I I overtook the I took the reins for the final edit. Right, I had two editors on this. One of which is one of the smartest editors I know. I've I've done sound design for him in the past, Neil Evans, and the other was my father, Rick Blakely, and. Uh, we did it in waves and that's kind of, I kind of adopted that reality TV assemble edit workflow. And I've done that with a, a couple of narrative films that have worked to great effect. So when it, it came down the pipeline to me, I needed Jonathan as that 30,000 foot view in the sky who was asking those questions of what is the intent behind this shot? Are we cutting too much? Because, you know, Roger, I know that you kind of winced at the why is there a, sh a cut every three seconds you start to <laughs> lose yourself from the immersion from the experiential right. nature of what film can do and i was just uh, that's when the relationship with jonathan that i've been building up for 15 years really paid off when we were kind of finishing this thing because he was able to unbiasedly look at the piece not even he took off his writer's hat and he just watched it as like an audience member and was able to really kind of you know that's got to be difficult for a writer was it difficult for you jonathan to like kind of um you know make decisions kill babies kill words and jokes or lines that you liked but just weren't befitting for the film yeah i mean there were a few things that uh i mean you know it always hurts more when it's coming from someone else, but then there was plenty of things I saw myself. And, uh, but I, we had enough distance after making it, you know, with the edit that uh, I had enough distance to see where, you know, there were some things that just had to go. And it, it was also, you know, to save myself, to save myself the embarrassment of like that scene or that part of that scene or that line is stupid. It's immature. It's, you know, it doesn't need to be there. So it was it was nice to have the chance to be in the edit with you and to be able to re-edit some of my own words to, you know, for my own <laughs> for my own pride sake. That's awesome. That's awesome. To be able to detach yourself like that is an is an excellent skill to have. For sure. You know, I, I don't do video editing for a living, but I have been editing <laughs> since since nineteen eighty nine, since college. Um and one thing I've always hated was having to log tapes. So my question for Travis and Chris, <laughs> do you guys have to log your own tapes or do the, or, you know, files or whatever, or do, is that already done before it gets to you? I'll let Chris answer and then I'll, I'll follow up. Uh, so when I started um, in filmmaking um, in college, we use mini DV tape. That's how we started. Uh, so at that point in time, yes, we were logging tapes. We, were, we had to put tapes into a little, into, and this is in 2009, mind you. We had to put tapes into a little uh, tape machine and uh, log it, capture it, do all that. But these days, uh, because it's all primarily digital, the, the good thing is, at least with the camera that I use uh, for shooting, uh, I record to an SSD card where the footage is already on a drive, plug it right in, 
you know, transfer to another drive and basically start cutting the movie right there. Uh, or you can, um, uh, or, you know, you could also name, rename your files. I've done that too, but essentially no, uh, no locking and capturing, at least these days for me. I, uh, I got started in 2002 and I was working with mini DV decks. I was working with the Sony UVW 1800 beta cam SP deck. This was uh pre uh tapeless workflow to whereas for deadlines we had to physically output from Betacam SP to VHS and deliver to FedEx before 5 p.m. That was a real authentic deadline. Nowadays it's just export upload, right? Um but I do remember logging and capturing command seven was ingrained into my brain. <laughs> um media composer that pulls up your digital uh, your digitized tool. And um these days, Roger, I do still log my own footage. I, I do a method called bag and tag. And it's it's I learned it from my father. It's basically you watch the raw on a uh, one of those yellow legal pad uh, notebooks and you're physically writing down what's being said, trying to track it with time code as fast as you can. You do, you're doing it shorthand. Then I go back into Avid or Premiere or Resolve or whatever NLE you want to work with. And I start adding the locators. I start adding locators or, or markers to the raw based off of the notes that I took. Then I rewatch the footage and uh, fill in the blanks and kind of make sure that the locators are, are lined up. This is a long, windy process, but it, it allows and enables me to be God, be the knower of, of everything. And I have a certain nomenclature or naming convention for my locators. All caps is the character. All lowercase is dialogue. Upper lowercase is action. Um, Color-coded markers and locators. All that to say that that's now gone out the window with text-based editing through Adobe Premiere and even Resolve. Maybe Avid's avid adding it too. I'm not advocating nor endorsing any of that. I'd like to try it out because apparently you can take and I'm going to sound so um, such a noob if this comes out, you know, in like <laughs> a year, everything's advanced and like, oh my gosh, this is so primal and archaic. But like, apparently you can have the clips transcribed within your uh, preferred editing software. Uh, and then a, a script shows up and uh, like a word document or a text, you know, file shows up. And, you know, Jonathan, like you could look at that document within Premiere and just start piecing together your own par uh, sentences and oh, phrases. That's awesome. And all of a sudden it's- Yeah, I had to rewrite the, the whole the thing. <laughs> <laughs> I had to rewrite the whole thing to match the movie, you know, to give yeah. to somebody, I don't know, Dark Sky or something. Oh, it's amazing too. Cause I mean, Res DaVinci Resolve, for example, they're making it so that AI detects the words from your clips. Uh, I don't think, uh, cause like at work at my day job, we have to do script syncing as well, but that's what a pre-existing document that's already right. uh, written or, or transcribed also through AI, but it's never always accurate, but uh, we're getting there, you know? I mean, how cool is that though, that you can take a word doc or a text file and just smash together your own sentences and then see that, you know, generated in the timeline instantly. It's pretty, it, yeah, it's it really amazing. helps the string yeah, out wild. process. Mm -hmm. It's pretty wild. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So, Jonathan, why don't you tell us about your journey to becoming a scriptwriter? Oh, um, well, I 
always liked writing ever since I was a, a kid, songwriting, poetry, short stories, all that stuff. And then when I was in Chicago, uh, it was like 2000, I took a class um, at a place called Chicago Filmmakers. It was like a co-op, it's probably it was like an eight week course, something like that, and 10 weeks. And you know, by the end, you're supposed to come out with a script. And I did, I did everything they said and I read whatever they told me to and watched whatever they told me to. And uh, yeah, I came out with a script that I don't even know where it is. I'm sure it was uh, just not great or at best. But uh, yeah, that's where I learned the the craft of it. Um, and then, you know, there I was, I just was kind of hanging out with filmmakers and just trying to become a filmmaker and worked on a horror movie and a bunch of music videos. And then me and some friends, we moved out here to LA and I got caught up in, uh, I'm a prop master, I'm a union prop master. So I just kind of got lost in the shuffle a bit, but I always, retained my love of writing and uh yeah this opportunity came and uh travis and i had a script we were looking at that just wasn't quite gonna work for uh what we could afford and what we wanted to do and so uh he kicked around an idea of uh people showing up at an airbnb and and some strangers being there and I just took that idea and uh, in secret, I wrote out uh, a little outline. And then uh, one day I revealed that I had this and I we met at a coffee shop and I did a little dog and pony show with, uh, you know, colored three by five cards. And that's what became Eight Found Dead. That's awesome. That's so mm, cool. Nice. Um, <clears throat> and uh, did you both have films you grew up watching that sort of gave you the filmmaking bug? Yeah. I, like not a lot of people can answer what's your favorite movie i can answer that like right. split. it's ferris bueller's day off that was the thing at nice. five years old that oh, there was, you go. Like, <laughs> it grabbed me and the reason why it grabbed me is because matthew broderick or john hughes it was john hughes's idea i think to break the fourth wall and have ferris talk to you or look sure. at you or or make you know little snide facial expressions you know, winking or tongue in cheek type stuff. And to me, I was like, oh my gosh, he's my friend. He's talking to me directly. You know, <laughs> I remember in Scrooged at the end, uh, there was a credit break, I think, where I was in the theater watching Scrooge and the credits break. I don't know if this is on the DVD, Blu-ray or streaming versions, but in the theater, the credits broke and Bill Murray thanked everyone for coming out except for that guy right there. And he pointed <laughs> the audience and I, I was, I was in the direction nice. of his, where his finger was pointing. I was like, fuck, it's me again. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and then the film that I made right before eight found dead is a film called 10 essentials, which kind of kickstarted the whole eight found dead desert motif aesthetic off. I, it was a monologue starring Eddie Acosta who plays Ricky in this film. And Eddie had performed this play, Ten Essentials. He had performed this piece, Ten Essentials, on stage. It was written for the stage, and he asked me to adapt it to a short film, kind of a monologue, and not kind of. It is a monologue, but we were <laughs> going to try to make it interesting visually, in like a Sam Beckett. It's a Sam Beckett-inspired existential apocalyptic type script, and he said this really killed on stage because I was able to look out to the audience and connect with them on 
for film, how are we going to do that? And I go, easy. We're just going to do what Ferris Bueller did. Like, you're going to look down the barrel of the lens and you're going to connect with the audience. And it was a little alien or foreign for him at first. But when he saw it played back, he was just like, oh, I see what you're going for. That it, It's a one-man play, right? So he, it's about a guy who's chained to a corpse in the desert and wakes up not knowing how he got there. And he just kind of rips into this diatribe about his feelings on life. And he's like, who am I going to talk to? The, the guy's dead. Like, I, am I just going to look out to the heavens, to the skies? And it's like, no, just look at the camera and connect to the audience. And it has a remarkable kind of psychological effect when you feel like the actor is just, you know, staring you in the eyes. That's awesome. I hope that That's answers awesome. your question. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I was going to actually ask. Um, I was not going to ask. Um I was going to say, let's go around the table now. So we already know your favorite movie. Uh, Travis, what's your all-time favorite movie, if you can name one? Oh, Jonathan? Uh, that was me. That I'm sorry, Jonathan. <laughs> oh, all-time favorite? Uh, oh, God. I don't. Uh, it might be Groundhog's Day. It could be. I don't know. It could be Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. That's really been kicking Ooh. my ass for the last Ooh. few years. That was part of what uh, our movie sort of was based on. But uh, yeah, I just as a kid, I just grew up. I just wanted to watch every single thing. I just I watched TV all day. I watched every movie I could. And uh, yeah, the 90s were so great. All the independent stuff. You know, once I realized, you know, how much movies cost, I sought out every cheap movie, every seven thousand, sixty thousand dollar, hundred thousand dollar movie. Pie was huge. I really loved that. But nice. uh, yeah, <laughs> I love them all. <laughs> Baby movie of uh, the the first Rocky movie, I would say. Nice. Yeah. yeah, I just always found it to be, I mean, inspirational aside. I like the fact that it's uh, not just about boxing or about fighting, but there is a, uh, but it's about a person or about people, you know, and that there's uh, more of an arc to it. So yeah, I I've always enjoyed it. That's Do you awesome. think Adrian's arc and her her transformation over the series is at all realistic? She's so <laughs> strange in the first one, and then no. she ends up being like this '80s wasp. You're like, what the fuck happened to Adrian? That I, girl is I, I crazy. Know. I, I know. By the time Rocky's three and four came around, it's like, whoa! It's like, what, it's like, yeah. what happened? It's like, what? I mean, cool. money and taking the glasses off ain't gonna make keep adrian from being fucked well, up you not know? just that but also uh the the, the whole series itself uh, took a bit of a i mean i i like both three and four like they're fun but uh it went in a oh, totally, sure it went in a totally different direction like it went from yeah. this really nice humanistic story to uh a cartoon <laughs> basically <laughs> i mean you, you got hulk hogan fighting him for fuck's sake you know it's <laughs> like it's like what happened <laughs> I think Adrian's arc is interesting because I feel I felt like in the first movie she was very introverted. She probably suffered from anxiety or something that you know we didn't know about back then, and she had Polly keeping her down, holding her back. You know, <laughs> right, yeah. and when then when she gets Rocky and he's in her corner, no pun intended, no boxing pun intended, she's. <laughs> She learns to come out of that shell, and she—I at least that's that's kind of how I've always looked at it—is that she kind of overcame all that and sort of and 
when they had the wealth after his, you know, his. Oh yeah, the glasses in... come off after you get the wealth, right? Right. Well, I mean, yeah. she can't help but Basics. become a wasp, is what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Um, can I can I piggyback? Right, right, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Rod. No, I was gonna say, Roger, your favorite movie. Oh, uh, Blade Runner, of course. Blade Runner, good choice. Came out when I was 12. We saw that in the theater with my parents, and my mother hated it. She thought it was boring. Uh, my father didn't <laughs> know what to think of it, and I, I just, my jaw was on the floor through the entire film, and I just loved that whole experience, really kind of transformed my life. It was like, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like this before. And I was, and, you know, as yeah, it's a slow burn, but I, and every time I watch it since, I'm engrossed from beginning to end, and I always find new things in it. And so, yeah, that's that's my all-time favorite. Tears and nice. rain. Yep, yep. Great speech there. Can I piggyback off of uh, on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Um, basically, I had never seen the film, had heard about it, had never seen the stage play. And over the pandemic, when we were kicking around ideas about how we could do a cost-efficient kind of economical horror film, Jonathan said, well, you could just kind of take the idea of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, two couples stuck right. in a house, where you use their words to have them turn on each other and use their words as daggers or as weapons. I go, oh, I like that idea. And he sat me down, played it for me. I was entranced and <laughs> saw exactly what he was talking about. I mean, just incredible performances and really um, believable dialogue, relatable situations. We've all been in that uncomfortable situation with the overly obnoxious drunk person where you're like, I just want to get out, but I'm just too nice and too polite to just <laughs> walk away. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, I, I saw that back, geez, back in when I was taking, um, f I was minoring in film studies in college, and mm -hmm. I, I loved it then. It was Where good. was that? Where'd you go to school? I went to Salem State University in Massachusetts. Nice. And um, yeah, so that was fun. I, I enjoyed that. That, that. that Actually, I credit that film course, or oh, it was more than one course, it was several, um, I but I credit the teacher because um, I needed... I needed to take another course, and so I took American Musicals, and at the time, I hated musicals. I was probably like 19 or 20, and I came out of that class loving musicals. It was it was transformative again, you know? Mm. <laughs> so, uh, Chris, did so, you add something? Yeah, uh, well, I was going to say, on, on the subject uh, of favorite movies, were there any particular films that inspired Eight Bodies? Uh, for Eight Found Dead, the the big one was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, also Little Natural Born Killers, The Strangers. And for me personally, what I was like trying to actor-wise, specifically for one of the villains, I was really inspired by Stephen King's Rob Reiner's Misery. Okay. And that was kind of, you know, a single location, slow, slow burn horror where someone appears a certain way on the surface, but underneath they're just vile, evil, icky. That was a big inspiration. That's what about nice. you, for John? Um, yeah, I mean, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was a big one because, you know, you can't you can't have people show up and then they die 10 minutes later. You have to wait. So and it has to be interesting in that movie. There is no violence at all. I mean, I don't think so. Uh, no one dies. <laughs> that's for sure. But uh, it's so fucked up and they're just so mean and cruel and they corner each other. And uh, it's, it's just awesome. It's just so fucked up. So just, that was, that was a big one. 
Uh, I remember Death Trap. Watch Death Trap. I don't oh, yeah. remember why. Just because that's in one location. So there was a uh, little twist. Know, I watched a lot of. Yeah, I watched a lot of one location stuff. Tape is one of my favorite movies. Oh yeah. Um, I just liked you know kind of stuff that was, you know, it's one location and so it's going to be talky and just trying to watch stuff that had interesting uh, dialogue and had uh, layers that were peeling away slowly. Right. So you effectively build up the tension throughout the film, which I loved. Um, I noticed there was at least a maybe conscious or unconscious, a nod to psycho in this movie and also a nod to Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Big time. Texas Chainsaw Massacre. We were playing every night when we would rap. Our cinematographer, director of photography, producer, VFX, director in his own right, extraordinaire Ryan Valdez brought up his projector and would cast, uh, project uh, from his projector onto like, I think a fence while we were all kind of huddled around a fire pit and we would drink and watch horror movies and Texas Chainsaw Massacre was on loop along with Freddy Got Fingered, which is (laughs) (laughs) Um, Those are just my two, you know, kind of comfort movies the original texas chainsaw massacre and freddie got fingered nice 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 now where did the concept of telling the story in these intertwined vignettes come from how'd you come up with that the inception of or the idea of the film started when i was i actually i sold my house to make this movie and it was in the middle of the pandemic july 2020 my wife had come up to me at the time and said Hey, I'm thinking about selling the house. What do you think? I said, uh, no, I, I work from home. I'm comfortable here. I, where are we going to go? And she's like, we could get a lot of money for our house. And I said, okay, I'm listening. And then <laughs> she, because John and I had been for about two or three months, been kicking around movie ideas. And I said, I thought, oh, if I could take the sale of the house and just, you know, privately fund a film, that would be a dream come true. And John has this great script. Well, he did. We didn't have that script at that time. We had another script that we were kind of like working on and trying to kind of break the story and really like it was just a, it wasn't working. And so we kind of took a hiatus, took a break, sold the house. I didn't want to move in with my wife and her parents, so I decided to just kind of float around LA County and I was gonna, you know, just try out different Airbnbs for a month or two months at a time and. And I landed uh, this ranch in 29 Palms out in um, the far stretches of 29 Palms, an area called Wonder Valley, and um, was living alone in this ranch with just me and my dog. And the country and the desert is terrifying at night. Um, you feel extremely isolated. I was isolating from isolation. And I came back from my sojourn and I told John, I've got the location. I've got what if you know, what if you rented an Airbnb and someone was already there? I had freaked myself out while living in this Airbnb <laughs> when I, because when I first arrived, I unpacked and to unwind, I poured myself a little bit of bourbon, rolled the joint, put on the record player, went outside and kind of just took in the stars and was looking for aliens. And all of a sudden, about 15 minutes into that experience, I hear this faint piece of music coming from the living room. And I'm out of my head at this point because I'm a little drunk, a little high. And I'm like, oh my God, someone's inside the house and they put on the record player and it's Guardians of the Galaxy and that <laughs> album sucks. What are, I got to turn this off immediately, but there's someone inside the house. And then I remembered that I had put that album on because it was the only thing available. Like the owners had just left that album there. And it's actually a pretty decent album. There's some songs that I've grown warm to. 
And, but it was just really kind of unnerving and nerve wracking to know, like, what if you showed up to a, uh, a rental property and someone's already playing, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears, or they're already playing house inside there. And John kind of took that simple idea, knowing that we were limited with, you know, production funds and budget. And he said, you know, we can make this scary if we take what works with who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And we kind of have fun with how these couples arrive to this, you know, really common mistake. It happens more often than not where people double book or right. the owners forget. And um, which is kind of uh, terrifying. And so John, like he said, we would during the pre-production and writing of the script, we would meet up weekly at a coffee shop in Toluca Lake called Priscilla's. And we would just sit and do what he deemed was the dog and pony show, which is where he would take three by five color coded index cards and each color represented a character or a scene or um, th that's all they represented was was just the different characters so uh, that I could quickly get a snapshot of each character's arc and plight in the film. And he would, you know, show me this color. This is green. She goes all the way to here. This is yellow. This couple is dead by here. And it was really fun and refreshing. And it was to me, it gave me, you know, usual suspect or usual suspects or memento vibes as far as like taking a simple story and flipping it on its head and, and having fun with what happens when it happens. It's a way to keep it kind of, I think, the audience on the edge of their seat and unsure of what's going to happen next. Right, right. You know, I loved the way you, you laid it out because I felt it it keeps the audience off balance. It makes it very unpredictable. You just have no idea what's going to happen next. And I thought that was very well done. Thanks. We Through the Dog and Pony show, we also came up with um, entrances and exits or what was it called, John? Like doors, windows, cupboards. Oh, yeah, like, doors and windows and drawers. And then, yeah, entrances and exits. Just sort of little places where transitions would work well one character and, leaves this door you come on you come to the other side of that door and it's a different time and space right what right. past films have you worked out writing or directing or otherwise um do you think helped inform your skill particularly with uh this film um for me i worked uh my very first horror film was a short film in 2011 called dear head valley it had some success uh, on the short film festival circuit. Uh, it played the big one was it played the New York Horror Film Festival and opened for Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejects because wow. of its aesthetic. I I like desert motifs. I'm from New Mexico. I've been in L.A. for about 25 years. So I just grew up in the desert. The desert's scary. I love the colors. I love the aesthetic. Um, and I like white trash horror, to be honest. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, you got a lot of great effects in, in this movie, and I, I wanted to ask you what went into making them. But, but first, in particular, there's one scene, I'm not going to give anything away, but there's a character who's wrapped up in some stuff. And it appeared, at least from my point of view, from the audience, that they were in that a long time. Can you speak a little bit about what into that scene? Oh, yeah. John definitely can speak to that. Yeah, that was, uh, we didn't have much time at all. We were on a crazy schedule. And uh, we hadn't, uh, Hannah Reisinger and I, we had tested the tape on our faces. We have a lot of fun pictures of that. And we knew that was going to work. And then we just took, 
we had the shower curtain already, uh, you know, fucked up because of a scene we shot earlier. And we just got the actor in her bathing suit, dumped a bunch of blood on her, wrapped it up and started taping. And then she sat down. We may have put the tape on her face, at least just for a quick test. Travis came in just about lot, you know. I couldn't film the scene. I couldn't film the scene because I felt. Uh, what is it? Culpable? Liable? <laughs> Liable. It was. It was really gross. <laughs> oh, we had such. A, but it was. It was really fast. I mean, I would say from the time we started, we started to the time we finished that was, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes. Oh, wow. it was we quick. Shot, we shot really fast. We shot, and I'm going to go back to the bloody shower curtain uh, question because it's it's fascinating and interesting. But uh, we shot. 63 pages in seven days so that's about nine pages a day and then we over the next four months six months we six months we shot the remainder which is about 17 to 19 pages over the the next six months through pickups and second unit work but the shower curtain scene was on our last day of principal photography it was with our scream queen jenny tran and she didn't really get to experience the camaraderie um or the the bonding that happened on set because we got her in real quick to the house hey you're going to clean up this house then we're going to dispatch you and then we're all wrapped here but john <laughs> had really worked with hannah reisinger our production designer on this um effects piece for m- maybe a day beforehand you had been you'd always been kind of constantly ahead of us on stuff like working on gags working on different kind of more um challenging pieces and I remember when it came together, it was so startling. And so um, I literally thought that we were putting this girl in danger, but we were not because Jonathan had wrapped it in such a way that she could always breathe. She was a trooper. She held her breath. Uh, I excused myself from set. I didn't want to be responsible for anything that happened, but I, I kind of handed the keys to our director of photography, Ryan Valdez, and he kind of directed her at that point to kind of he wasn't breathing when she wasn't breathing just so that she felt like she had a partner and just so that he could keep him his hand steady. And um, it was really uh, arresting the visual that, that we got from that. And oh, it's yeah. my favorite moment in screening this film with an audience when that, when that reveal happens, because people are literally concerned for her safety. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I had the same reaction. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I thought. So. Oh, uh, oh, uh, but I think that that was that was it about that. I I felt, I I knew we had something there where I had such a physical, um, uh, what is it? Uh, starts with a V. The word visceral, visceral, uh, visceral, visceral, visceral reaction <laughs> to the. Um, let me just pull up my Merriam dictionary. Merriam Webster. <laughs> yeah. While I'm on a podcast. Uh, a visceral reaction. I knew that it was going to work because if it if it makes you squirm or squeamish on set, it's just going to my my rule. And I learned this along the way with Deerhead Valley was blood for screen has to be 10 times the amount you think it needs to be in order for it to pop. And I think that Jonathan went times 10 with the um, sheer uh, magnitude of the effectiveness of this set piece nice in the design and construction of it 
Nice. Yeah, definitely shows. Um, anything you want to touch on about some of the other effects? So again, we don't want to give too much away here, but everyone dies. Everyone's murdered. Um, <laughs> there was a fun. <laughs> Let's just give it away. Fast forward if you don't want to hear this next bit. But um, I'll just say someone dies. They get uh, an axe to the back and this actor had to wear this makeshift uh, jerry rigged axe apparatus uh, as a vest or harness on their back. I was trying to achieve this shot in one fluid motion or a one -er, like, you know, just the whole action would just happen in one shot. Right. And no edit, unfortunately. And she pulled it off and our, you know, camera work was impeccable on it. And the actor, uh, you know, looked great and kind of kept their composure and, and um, their, uh, I guess, it's another word I'm blanking on, but there, my wife always tells me I have horrible posture. She kept her posture <laughs> to not reveal the, the gag. Unfortunately, I had to chop up the scene to work from an emotional and kind of geographical standpoint. Like I just wanted to show some more geography of the room in which these two actors were in. And so it required an extra two edits. So really we didn't have to do it that way, but it, it, did work effectively and it was a fun one to pull off. Jonathan, you could probably speak to more of that stuff since you were the writer and prop master in charge of a lot of the blood. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, that was just, you know, we just had to try to uh, write some fun stuff in, but we also had to go with the, the, the things we had access to and, and the budget uh, acts, you know, I had a rubber axe floating around and I knew we could, I went to ISS, the big rental house, and, and I knew they had an axe rig that we could put on our back. I had an aluminum knife, uh, which, you know, your classic psycho knife. So that was that was cool. We did the the mirror thing. That was that was a big one. Head smash into the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Head smash into the mirror. Like it happens all the time. There's fake mirror that you can buy at uh the breakaway glass place, but like it's not exactly hundred percent safe, you know, when, <laughs> when they do these things on a normal set, you know, there's a medic there, there's, you know, there's the, Hey, we may have to take him to get stitches. Oh, and uh, so there was just, you know, we did some tests, Travis stuck his head. Uh, I did the mirror the, test first so that mirrors. I wouldn't have to put anyone in danger. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and I had to, sort of sand down mirror pieces um, when when Carrie's doing the stab to make sure that, you know, it wasn't too sharp to hold. Oh, yeah. And then uh, when Carrie did, you know, when she smashed her head and, you know, she's a little nervous, like how, and, you know, we only have so many takes, so you need to convince her, like, you're going to be fine. You have to hit it hard. You're going to be fine. Hit it hard. And she did, and she did a really good job. Uh, there's a really fun uh, version of it in the behind the scenes that cuts from the the real shot to the behind the scenes shot. It's really cool. She did a great job. I have a question for Roger and Chris. Chris, you've seen the film, right? I haven't seen the film yet, no. Oh, you have not. But Roger, you <laughs> yes, have, I right? Have. Okay, so Chris, it's sorry great, to spoil Chris, anything. You'll like it. That's okay. Uh, That's okay. Roger, in that scene that we are talking about, there's a head smash and there's a shard of glass, a fragment left behind, a little remnant, right? And yeah. the actress steps on that glass. Yeah. Did it bump you at all that 
she didn't remove that shard of glass from her foot for a good five minutes. Yes. <laughs> Did it bump you? Okay, so it bumped it bumped one of our producers, Todd Abrams. We must hide this tape, this recording. Todd must never hear this. Todd was like, why would you pull that out immediately? And I, my conceit was, Todd, if you're in a traumatic event and you've got killers after you and sometimes you don't realize that you're injured you know like oh shit i'm shot fuck that you know that's kind of how i rationalize it you know thank you for todd has no rationale about that's hilarious todd was amazing on the film todd was our post producer and he helped us get it across the finish line so shout out to todd abrams that's amazing yeah yeah that's amazing. And yeah. you guys mentioned Ryan Valdez, who's the cinematographer. He's got oh, a great yeah. eye. What can you tell us about him and working with him? Well, the fact, besides the fact that I have a, cr- a man crush on him uh, and everything <laughs> that he does, everything that he, he touches turns to gold. Uh, Jonathan and I both really love the guy, his aesthetic, his he's very for as talented as he is. He's very nice. Like a guy with that talent shouldn't be as nice or as approachable as he is, because like I've wanted to work with him forever. He's one of my closest friends and he's always busy and booked on stuff. He's a, a an amazing director, writer, director in his own right. And he because we were in a pandemic, we were able to land Ryan because, you know, not a lot nice. of us were doing a lot. So th- the schedule aligned. Now we can't. I think it's a one and done with him. We'll never be able to get him again because oh, he's he's an in-demand kind of guy, but he's got an impeccable eye and, and sensibility. That's awesome. Oh, such a nice, I mean, his, his attitude and his energy really also helped us make the movie. I mean, he had to wear a lot of hats and really did a great job. He's awesome. Uh, how did you work with him in terms of like, did, did you shot list or storyboard? How did you decide on the visual? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Chris. We were initially slated to shoot this film entirely on a jib because I wanted not just to use the jib as like, oh, look at this move that we can do. Or now we can be a bird's eye view and now we can swoop around like a music video. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do it like that. I guess what I was kind of going for was like a Roger Deacon style techno crane. But my previous mm-hmm. short film, 10 Essentials, was shot on a jib and a dolly kind of a, a faux techno crane which i think they call it the china dolly and my my camera operator for that his name is sean mulligan brilliant dude he was very uh up for anything and just down for the cause and and sean and i had shot 10 essentials out in the desert in landers california which is just uh, west northwest of northwest or northeast can't remember of joshua tree and we chewed through a 12 page script in six hours, 10 or 12 page script in six hours. So when Jonathan gave me this script, that was a nice taut 80, 80 pages. I thought, oh man, I can shoot this in seven days. No problem because I've got the jib. I've got a, a great uh, dialogue heavy script. If the actors, which the actors did bring it and they were, no one was ever asking for a line. And it's, it's, there's a lot of words in this thing because that was what we were hanging our hat on. And so I thought, okay, we're going to shoot this like a stage play where the jib can just float around people. The blocking can be kind of fluid and breezy and people can feel like they have this space. And when we got to the set, I told Sean, our jib operator that I had, you know, eight foot ceilings. And he said, great, I got a six foot jib arm. That'll fit perfectly. What we didn't take into consideration is that six foot jib arm requires a three inch um, counterweight or extension to kind of balance the jib to give you its impressive sweeping Uh action or or just articulation. And we were kind of screwed. So 
I shit a brick and called my therapist and said, I'm a, I'm, I'm out. I'm done. This is over. We're, I'm spending all this money and it's for nothing. And he quietly and calmly talked me off the ledge and said, didn't you tell me that you were shooting this with the best director of photography that you know? And didn't you tell me that this guy has been with you every step of the way through rehearsals? Because Ryan was also a producer and he had a lot of creative input and he's also a huge fan and expert in the horror genre. And so we were kind of bouncing stuff off of him, not only as a DP, but as a producer and as just a creative, you know, we, we called ourselves a tripod, a creative tripod. And Ryan was up to the fact that even though we could only use the jib for certain scenes or for mainly exteriors, Ryan was down to hop on it handheld and just kind of, I was rejiggering my shot list and storyboard. I, I storyboarded everything for 10 essentials, even creating, you know, quick time animatics through a, a software called Frameforge. Wow. I'm able to, to generate, you know, quick 3d models and, um, shot list and storyboard through that all the way from you know character detail lighting detail set design all that stuff and that all kind of went out the window thankfully i had lived in this house for two months prior so i knew it pretty well and we knew that simple back to basics uh, a simple back to basic strategy would work to our advantage and going handheld with something that, that i wasn't expecting us to do but it actually lent itself to more of a creepy authentic believable vibe because ryan was the fifth cast member on set with these people and what i mean by fifth cast member is normally these scenes uh in in most of the, the majority of these scenes there's four people in a scene the two couples and ryan right. was the fifth member and able to kind of just really naturally effectively follow the story almost in a cinema verte kind of cinema verte kind of way even though we he he had been a part of the rehearsal so he knew how it should go we didn't want to be too flashy or too you know it was it was substance over style on this one even though ryan has an impeccable style he was still able to do that with the lighting and the look of the film and the lens choices um so I'm just really impressed with how it came out as a happy accident. Everyone would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Very well yeah. done. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the cast a little bit because you got a really great cast here. I mean, Nancy Linehan Charles was just awesome as Patty. <laughs> Thank you. One of my favorites. I mean, she was in Three from Hell and Lords of Salem and, you know, even Bram Stoker's Dracula. So she know, she knows her way around horror. She does. And she has incredible um, stories from, uh, you know, like stories from yesteryear about working with Steven Spielberg or, you know, she's uh, a regular on Young Sheldon. Um, she's someone I've wanted to work with for over a decade. And it took a pandemic for us to actually kind of connect. Uh, Jonathan and I before we got started on eight found dead i was helping jonathan shoot kind of stay at home music videos and i i was like L let me run through the mental rolodex see who i have or haven't worked with or kind of a wish list of people that i've wanted to work with and nancy was one of them um i had seen her in a short film called piano fingers back in 2011 at holly shorts and had gotten her information there and ne never had the right um well, I always had the right role for her, but she never responded to my emails. And then finally, through the pandemic, she I guess she was answering email. And she's just so <laughs> sweet and, and giving. And she's I was a little intimidated working with her because she has quite the resume. But she's just like I learned a lot from her because even though 
she's that talented. She understood that, you know, she was there to serve uh, a purpose on the film and, and in her role. And I learned that and I apply that to my, you know, day job with editing is I'm here to play a role in this, uh, you know, endeavor. And uh, the cast, the rest of the cast um, came through Tim Simic, who plays Richard and Roseanne Lamaris, who plays Liz. They are a real life married couple. Oh, okay. Tim is, I have a background in improv and Tim is my, um, director for an improv troupe called slow children at play out here in North Hollywood, California. They're in their 24th or fifth year, I believe. And Rosie plays in that group. Uh, Laura buckles who plays officer Blake. She also plays in that group. She's one of the longest running members of that group, standing members of that group. Um, Alyssa Trasher or Ali Trasher. She plays the role of Carrie. She was a producer of mine on 10 essentials starring Eddie Acosta. She and Eddie are friends in real life. And I thought it would be awesome to have a film or, or a vehicle to, to show their relationship in real life. Like they're, they're really good friends and um, know each other inside out and can play off each other really well, knows what makes each other tick. And I thought it'd be funny to make them boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, nice. Allie helped me cast a couple of other roles. She helped me cast Alicia Soper who plays um, Sam. Sam. Gabriel Greer, who is her beau in this, who plays Dwayne, opposite of Alicia. Uh, I met him at 2018 Slam Dance. I had seen him in a film called Birds Without Feathers. He was terrific in it. I was just enamored with him and thought, man, he's got not what you would traditionally think is leading man characteristics or qualities about him, because this was an offbeat, kind of quirky, oddball comedy but I could see something in here in him that was just he just has uh, an authenticity, a believability to him. Uh, and we wanted to cast him in this role where this would normally be the quintessential jock or meathead who you want to see kind of killed off early. But we wanted to give him a little more um, intelligence, uh, logic kind of but also heart like he's sticking it out for his girlfriend like he's going along with her with her with her weekend her idea for this big celebratory weekend um eddie was my assistant editor eddie acosta that's how i met him i met him in 2016 and we both kind of um, bonded over a mutual love of cinema and um the the craft of acting and i was getting into acting i never fully went that route but i i I got into acting to learn how to speak to my cast in more effective mm -hmm. ways, yeah. you know, rather nice. than just simple, germane, basic instruction, faster, harder, slower, better, bigger, you know, faster or more intense. More. Let's yeah. More. We're out of six. <laughs> it's more with feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, take it to yes. an 11. Give it the um, same thing, but different. Yeah. And it's I, like Dario Argento, you know, he's always concerned, more concerned with the technical aspect of the film <laughs> than the actors, you know, mm, yeah. and for me, it's the opposite. For me, the life and the, the relatability of the story is through those actors and how much they can bring from their own life into this. And a lot of the backstory or subtext behind these characters and their choices are derived from myself or uh, Ali Trasher's life, like people that we know, archetypes that we know, situations and scenarios that we know. The not to spoil anything, but the cancer situation was something that happened in my life where my wife's friend 
um, invited all her friends out to this big kind of glamorous or, or like uh, extravagant dinner to, to make this big announcement. And I asked her the next day, my wife, I said, how was the, you know, the dinner? Was it great? What, what was the announcement? She's like, Oh, she told us that she has cancer. And that was kind of a, an interesting way to kind of let the people, you know, and that love you, something's going on in your life. And, and I had mentioned that to Jonathan. I was like, you know, what would kind of maybe tug on some heartstrings? Cause a lot of these, a lot of horror films with their thesis or their, the, the objective of the narrative is, is a little um, anemic and doesn't is it's not super relatable. And I thought, what can we do to kind of humanize this? So it doesn't just seem like not another teen horror movie cabin in the woods. And Jonathan loved that idea. And he really um, added some weight and gravitas to something like that, which at the end of the day, this is a slasher. It's a home invasion film, but there's, there's some big, takeaways from you know dynamics between different relationships and uh some social commentary in there and i really thought it's it's unique with what it says or kind of subtly says and and that's the thing you know to your point it's the characters are very relatable you know it's it's um like you said they're not cardboard cut out oh you know mo- most teens in slasher movies are assholes so it's like you you cheer when they get killed off and in this, you're kind of right there with them as the shit's hitting the fan. You Roger, know? that was huge. We we really strived Jonathan in the script to not to make these people likable to the to the push them to the edge, especially Sam, the character of Alicia Soper, like the annoying influencer who's just she can't separate life from her views, you know, like her real life from her channel. Right. And but you care for her, and there's this twist or this turn that happens. Um, midway through the film that really just in one of the reviews uh, I've read uh, uh, the reviewer was bumped by that they were like you took a slasher film that turns into this really heavy subject matter and I love that (laughs) I love that it's kind of it it hits the brakes and you go wait what (laughs) yeah exactly exactly you know and just the acting all around here was just intense you know, it was very. Did did you do something where they were, um, maybe prior to production, you had them all kind of hang out together oh, for yeah. a few days? So basically, yeah. I'm friends with most of them. The only people that I didn't know prior to this was, uh, I knew Nancy, but only via email and having worked with her on a short little one-off music video. Alicia had never worked with before. Uh, Gabriel I'd never worked with before and Patrick Joseph Reiger I'd never worked with before but Patty and I really connected we're very similar um, we were actually supposed to shoot this film at Patty's cabin he owns an A-frame in Crestline California the film was initially supposed to take place in the mountains and that kind of fell through but I liked Patty so much when I was location scouting I said your cabin's beautiful. It's not going to work for this script because we're kind of changing it and altering it to this other rental spot that I actually stayed at in the desert because I can do it cheaper. Uh, but I would love to cast you in this because I felt this kind of kinetic, connective energy with him. And um, But to answer your question, being in the pandemic, two things. It enabled us to zoom rehearse and do table reads and enabled us to meet up in each other's backyards. And it was, it was, it was good twofold one everyone was tired of being stuffed up in their own place isolating so we kept these rehearsals in people's backyards where we were able to socially be socially distant mask up 
make sure that we're, you know, taking all of our health precautions. Laura Buckles, who plays Officer Blake in this, she's also she was also our COVID compliance officer. So we were following, you know, uh, we were following the rules and trying to make sure that everyone's safety was paramount. But two, not only not only was it refreshing to finally kind of meet up and kind of hang out with people, but we were able to rehearse and workshop things and try out different ideas and really let the actors put these beautiful words in their own language and in their own way. One of the reasons why I cast Eddie Acasa is because no one in this world speaks like Eddie Acasa. He'll call anyone dude or bro. doesn't matter how you identify. <laughs> he doesn't care. It's just part of his vernacular. And so I was asking him to throw dudes and throw a little bit of Spanglish in there every once in a while because it's so unique and specific to who Eddie is in real life. I thought that people would be re re relieved or refreshed to see a character like that, that they could maybe be like, oh, he's an everyman. Like, I can relate to that guy. He's so nonchalant. It doesn't I never want the words. I never want you to feel like you're listening to Jonathan as as smart and as talented as Jonathan is. I wanted Jonathan to give these people launching points so that they could bring their own truth and their own identity and put them in these characters because Jonathan did write so many characters. And at first I was like, no man, can we just keep this to three or four people? But I'm so glad that he was strident about keeping it to 10 because initially the film was called found dead. And I said, where that's a good, it's an interesting title, but is there anything more to it? And he's like, well, like, I mean, you know, it's like, a news uh, Yahoo article you would come across like eight found dead in a, you know, abandoned warehouse. And I go, Oh, adding the number two found dead is interesting because then that allows you, the viewer to kind of clock the body count as we're right. folding the story. And it makes you, you know, scratch your head. Who's going to survive. And that's kind of what we're basing this all on is it's not about who dies. It's about who survives and how, how they survive. And, absolutely and um when the cast was on set that was another kind of little holiday for them because they felt like they were back out doing what they love in the world uh in in you know they were in the game and they brought a real great sense of professionalism and urgency to this where you could feel it you could feel that it mattered you could feel that it was not just another kind of vacuous or vapid horror film it was something that was more of a character piece and that to me is that's the type of film i want to make i want it to be character first plot and story yeah. second and that, that's what makes it work and i gotta i gotta just say that you know tim and roseanne as richard and liz man they stole <laughs> the show <laughs> They were just, you know, at 11. Yeah, I mean, Tim's like <laughs> that in thing. real life. He might be. A... <laughs> oh, no, really? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh. No, Tim is very, uh, he is a chameleon, man. He is one of the funniest guys that I know. And Roseanne just would crack me up uh, always. Um, she's so nice and so deceiving, so deceivingly nice. Um, but I, I based her, I, I would give her homework as like, you're watching, you know, I need you to watch Misery and Kathy Bates. And she's such a fan uh, and lover of the horror genre that she was like, easy, got it, know what to do with it. Tim, uh, John, I don't know if you, did you give him any kind of like uh, direction or kind of inspiration as far as like how to play Tim or who, or Richard, how to play Richard? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think I know at the beginning he had a lot more of the lines and he was sort of the uh, the main evil in the in the movie. But then the 
I just kept uh, shifting lines over to Liz and man, that just helped. That just made a really interesting. Character. Like basically just... putting words that Richard would have said, but in Liz's mouth. Yeah. Cause at first in, you know, in my head, it was more stereotypical. The, you know, the female is a little more passive and then the more fucked up lines we gave her, the more like, Oh, this character is fascinating. Like, this is great. Let's. So they, they came out a little more 50, 50 and, you know, became more partners. It was really good shift. Hey, Chris, close your ears on this one. Spoiler alert. And if you don't want to hear how it ends, just fast <laughs> oh, forward for 15 <laughs> seconds. But when we were cutting the scene of the final scene and Roger, you're yeah. talking about the goodbye. Yes. We were a little sad that we were saying goodbye to Richard and Liz. And I had, I, I fooled with John. He left the edit bay and I kept working on the scene all the way up until the credits. And then I added a credit break and I, pontificated or proposed that there we would go back in time to an origin story and john wasn't mad at it and it was one of my uh, john always calls me out on like my goof goof ideas like i'll ask him am i going to goof goof here and he'll kind of pull me back <laughs> when i jump over the over off the cliff he'll kind of pull me back in and he's like ah let's roll the dice on it let's it's suggestive it could be it could entice the audience to come back for more. And to me, it was just inspired by the original Friday the 13th when, you know, Jason Voorhees kind of shows up at the end and and grabs the woman. Um, he, he appears from the bottom of the lake and grabs right. her name. He pulls her back in and, you know, oh, it, who was it? Yeah. I was going to say, was it Annie? I can't remember. Yeah. And, and you're like, oh my gosh, there's going to be another one. Yes. And that's kind of the emotion that I wanted to evoke from this because in the origin story, which is called Eight More Dead, which the script has already written and has already been sent to a few important people, it's nice. it's hotter, bloodier, sexier, funner, if that's a word, which it's not, but it's a lot of er. <laughs> and it's it's just, it's everything that we learned while making this film, but just amped up to 11 and nice and the feedback from it has been overwhelmingly um warm and receptive because we know this jonathan knows this world so well and he was just able to have fun with liz like this is a femme fatale movie you know oh yeah liz is insane in this next script it's crazy nice nice yeah and it was funny because you know when i got to the end of the movie and uh, i was like Oh man, I, I wanted to play a little bit more in this universe. And then I saw the to be continued and I was like, yes. Oh, nice. So you're in that <laughs> camp. Cause I have a couple of friends who are like, oh dude, you're just doing the Marvel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, no, there's uh, some substance there. Back to, uh, back to the goof goof. Uh, one of the, one of my favorite movies is funny games, both versions. And they have, the you know the ferris bueller break the fourth wall they have the strange rewind and so when travis comes up with you know crazy stuff like the ending and a few other things we came up with i mean you know as much as we don't want to be goofy there's also like fuck it man we're here like let's do something that's that's bold and stands out you know i'm sure there are people that hate the rewind in funny games but you'll never forget it you know Hmm. I've never seen that one. That oh, was an inspiration to Michael Haneke. The there's the original see both and, versions. The original I think is the '97, okay. and then the remake he made ten years later is shot for shot. He made the original for a Swiss French audience, and then he did shot for shot the remake 
of the same film that he made 10 years prior, but with him. Well, not for the American audience, but with Tim Roth and Watts, Naomi Watts, Naomi Watts. Yes. And Michael Pitt, Michael Pitt. Yeah, it's great. Really great. That's awesome. That is so cool, man. Well, th- this movie is just obviously inspired. It's just so well done. I think it's, I think it's going to really find an audience. Um, you know. Oh, I want one thing. I wanted to mention the two cop characters. I I liked their story too because they had this underlying baggage, if you will, going on, and they're having these conversations while they're doing their job. And I just, I love that. That's one of the things I loved about Pulp Fiction is you've got two assassins. But they're not talking about <laughs> the plot. They're talking about, you know, what they ate in Europe or whatever, you know. And it's like it was kind of the same here. And they were like, I'm not, I'm not going to say too much more. But they did remind me, though, where there, there were shades of, are you familiar with the show Wellington Paranormal? Yeah, from uh, New Zealand. British show? Or New it's Zealand. New Zealand, yeah. yeah, yeah it's a spinoff show. of what we do in the shadows. Yeah. And it's the, it's about this man and woman cop and they go through this like incredibly bizarre things. They're, you know, paranormal stuff that's going on, but they play it completely straight all the way through. And this, the, it was more their, their dynamic in your movie reminded me of the dynamic of the two characters in the show because they've just got it. They worked well together. I think that I that's a testament to Jonathan's writing. Like he took the tenets of, you know, the horror film or the CSI investigation and added another layer to each character, uh, each couple's dynamic. And it, it gave you a little extra, it's the sweet and sour sauce, right? It gave you a little, little flavor. And for me, that was really fun, but it was also difficult to manage because while shooting this film, I had to juggle eight people's backstory, where they are, when they are, we were shooting block, block style shooting where it was non-linear non-linear to begin with so we all had to be really sharp and on our you know on our toes as far as like where are we when are we in the story to maintain those dynamics to maintain those where they are in the relationship if they just got out of a fight if they're about to get into a fight and underlying all that is oh yeah they're um just basically sheep in the in the lion's den or in the wolf's den. Nice, know? nice. Um, so uh, as we wrap things up here, is there anything else you guys want to tell us about the producers and the crew or the making of the movie? Hmm. Jonathan, have we left anyone out? Oh, I don't know. I mean, our crew was awesome. And like I said, I think we really got lucky because it was COVID. I think that we got a higher caliber of crew because people were available. They were available at the, 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 the money that we could scrape up. And I think that it helped, uh, you know, them sort of tolerate, you know, independent film. Yeah. The (laughs) conditions, you know, being out in the desert and, and, you know, all that stuff, because the alternative was, well, yeah, just go back home and with your wife or your boyfriend and sit there doing nothing. So it was a great, it was a great opportunity, I think, for everybody to just do what they they love to do that they hadn't got to do in a long time. And we got really lucky. I mean, our cast is top notch. Our crew was fucking great. And, you know, we had to call them back and they, they just kept showing up and kept bringing their A game. And we got a lot of great shit. It was. Yeah, it was, it was really a, cool. a lot of this crew was people I had worked with friends, really, that I had worked with over the past five or six years while I've been, you know, kind of 
practicing my craft and and amassing um kind of a trusted stable of of craftsmen and and heads of department and from audio to gaff it was all people I had worked with before. Um, my mother was a caterer. She and her sisters did the craft service and catering and, you know, supplied breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 30 people for, you know, seven, eight days. And that was, that was a Herculean task. And I owe her a lot of money. I'm on a payment plan with her. Jonathan, I owe. We had Nate Upshaw who you've worked with. Oh my gosh. Bunch for for years and years. He's yeah, he's a fixer and he's a uh, a jack of all trades that wears a lot of hats. And he's been with me since my first film in 2010. Um, the fact that I could have my father edit on this was just um, I was very lucky, very lucky to have that. And um, trying to think just I as I, you know, Chris, I work in pro post-production as well. So I was able to call in a lot of favors Sure. to help me get this done from Geiger post to Wildwoods post-production. They all kind of chipped in and helped out. And um, we've just been super stoked to land with dark sky films. I've loved their filmography for the past 15 years. Um, I think it's a perfect match and they've just been championing the film and spreading the word and have secured us a theatrical release, which comes out in select cities, September 8th, we're playing Grimfest UK in October, October 8th to be exact. I like that we're landing on all these, you know, day eights. Yeah, yeah and we'll be uh, VOD everywhere on, on September 8th as well. Perfect, so. perfect. That's awesome. Excellent. And uh, IMDb says you're also going to premiere in Russia in October. Is that accurate? Well, no one's told me that, but I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> read it, but I don't love IMDb. You never know. <laughs> You never know. Yeah. IMDb <laughs> says a lot of things, but who knows? Yeah. I know Australia, England, those are coming. Physical release in October. Um, more details to come. We're a little behind on creating the Eight Found Dead website. I'm dragging on that. Um, but we do have, I believe, what is it? YouTube.com backslash Eight Found Dead. We'll be putting up a bunch of stuff there behind the scenes. We have a sweet 20 minute featurette on the making of Eight Found Dead, which was fun. Um and eight found dead on Instagram. You can find us. Yeah, yeah that's the best place nice. to go. Nice, and we'll put all those links in the show notes as well as I'll include the the pictures that you sent me, so people can have a gander okay. at those. Just make sure you like hashtag eight found dead film and not make sure you include <laughs> the film. Oh yeah, no, I won't. Otherwise, <laughs> yeah, that would a be lot a lot of yeah groups of eight demise and if i could leave you with one thing roger and chris i was you know as the filmmaker and this is my debut feature film i'm always keen to look up what's out there what's being said about it and i i welcome the good and the bad and actually i i do value the negative feedback more than the positive because it it really makes me think and try to see someone else's point of view but one of the most disturbing comments i saw on uh there was it was on youtube someone else had kind of uploaded the trailer and it got some pretty good viewership, but it got some interesting comments. And one of them was like, why do we need eight heads in a duffel bag? The remake. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. It's not that film. It's no, no. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) That's hilarious. 
People are funny. That's that, that, that's a that's a cult favorite for me. But, <laughs> Joe know. Pesci at his best. <laughs> I wish we yeah. could get Joe Pesci for the remake. <laughs> oh yeah, that's too funny. So do you guys, um, like I said, I have all the contact info. Do you have any other like personal websites or contact info that you want to give out, or, or is it just for the film? Um, you can find me at say hello at uh, the Travis Green T R A V I S G R E E N E Instagram. I'm on there a lot. And I'm at at choking media on Instagram, choking on media, choking on. Excellent. Media. Excellent. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us today. And we're going to get this episode out thank you. really soon. Hey, thanks, Roger. And great. Chris. I appreciate it. Thank you so here. much. Thank you. You too. Have a great Take night. Care. And too. I'm going to log off. Yeah, that's now. totally cool, Oh, man. So that was awesome. Those guys were great, huh? Yeah, they were. I liked uh, hearing about their influences. I liked hearing about their process and uh, their aspirations. Uh, I have, you know, makes me want to actually sit down and actually uh, uh, see the film. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> You've been so busy lately. It's it's hard. To I have. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So, yeah, so folks, check out, we're going to put the links in the show notes. Check out uh, September 8th is going to be the uh, on-demand premiere of 8 Found Dead. So, folks, thanks for joining us on our discussion with Travis Green and Jonathan Buchanan. And um, you can find me and my other shows, The East Meets the West, The Cult Movie Lounge, uh, Fright Lounge, our monthly live streaming show, as well as my four blogs at havenpodcasts.com. And if you want to give us feedback, please email us at thenisnow42 at gmail.com. And you can find me on my website, which is storiesmotion.com. I'm also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stories in Motion. And folks, don't forget to check out our YouTube page at youtube.com slash user slash UncleDeath1. That's right. And if you like what you're hearing, please, please leave us a great review wherever you download your podcast from. So it'll bump us up the algorithm and more people can find us. Which, by the way, I'm going to go on a quick tangent here. I Stitcher has been my go-to app for listening to podcasts for the last, I don't know, decade or so. And they're gone. They they closed shop on August really? 29th. Yeah. They got bought out by wow. Sirius XM. They're still around supposedly producing podcasts. I think they kind of host uh, Gilbert Godfrey, uh, not Gilbert Godfrey, uh, Quentin Tarantino's <laughs> podcast. I was gonna say it's Gilbert. I was gonna say it's Gilbert Godfrey. Do they get a flashlight, a couple shovels? Like how how does that work? No, they get some. They get they get um hotel uh, shampoo and conditioner. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I'm pissed by that. So folks, you won't be hearing us on that anymore, and you've probably already figured that out if you listen to us there. So, Uh, but we're on every other streaming app. So yeah, like I said, leave us a great review. It'll be awesome. It'll really help us out. Thank you for joining us today. Class dismissed. heard check out the dorkening podcast network at the dorkening.com